The latest figures from the U.S. national debt now approaching $22 trillion. Just ahead, our conversation taped in April of 2017 with Maya McGinnis. She is the president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. She's also head of the campaign to fix the debt. She joined us in our Washington, D.C. studios to provide her insights into America's debt and deficit, how we reach this point, and what it means for you. $20 trillion. The nation's debt and growing. How many zeros is that? Yeah, $20 trillion is awfully big, hard to imagine. That's got 13 zeros. Uh, it's not a kind of number that you can actually sort of do multiplication with in your head, that's for sure. How did how did we get to this point? You know, the debt is both incredibly complicated and incredibly straightforward at the same time. And basically, the reason our national debt is so large in this country is because of a lot of policy decisions where we have done everything from big tax cuts to fighting wars to creating big new spending programs and not paid for them to the huge economic downturn that we had in 2008, which is actually when our debt ran up tremendously. Um, if you think about our debt relative to the economy, it basically doubled from right before we went into the economic crisis of 2008 and to where we are now. Um, and normally, the debt goes up and down. It goes up during bad times, either wars or recessions, and then it comes back down relative to the economy when the economy's strong. But now, things are in such kind of, I would say, a political deadlock where nobody really wants to make very many hard choices anymore. And we're borrowing, 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 and our debt is continuing to grow um, unsustainably. So if you could explain what President Obama was referring to during the campaign last year when he said year to year he has brought down the deficit. Yeah, deficit and debt are actually different in that the deficit is how much we borrow every year. Right now we borrow a little bit less than half a trillion dollars a year. And the debt, in many ways, is the accumulation of all that we've borrowed. So what can happen, so let's go back to that economic crisis of 2008, which President Obama inherited. He had a very healthy debt situation when he came into office and a very, very um, critically dangerous economic situation where we were in a huge recession. He had to turn that around. He and Congress had to turn that around. And as is normal, the debt grows during that time. Once the economy started to recover the annual deficits, the amount he was borrowing every year, started to come down. It had been over a trillion dollars, and it was gradually getting smaller, back down to about $400 billion. But even when you're running a deficit that's smaller than the previous year, you're still adding to the debt, so your debt is still growing. The only way your debt um, in dollar terms starts to come down is when you run budget surpluses. And when you run a surplus, you're actually buying back some of that outstanding debt. That's how your debt shrinks. I would actually say that the debt, uh, the dollar amount doesn't matter as much as how big it is compared to our economy. And so a critical goal is you do not want your debt growing faster than your economy. Kind of like if you don't want your credit card payments growing faster than your income because you get into a spiral that way. And um, the unfortunate reality is that's where we are right now. Our debt is growing faster than the economy, and it is projected to every year going forward until we make some changes. Can you explain why states are required to have a balanced budget? The federal government is not. Yeah, states are sort of required to have balanced budgets. They are, but they do have the opening where they can borrow for things that are deemed investments. Um, capital budget. So, of course, as you can imagine, 
Um, every state starts making the argument that just about anything they can think of is part of a capital budget. But it still is a much bigger constraint than the federal government. That's something they've decided to do politically. And it's also because the states don't impact the overall health of the economy. It's the federal government that needs to have that tool of borrowing more or less to help create demand when the economy is weak or help to respond to national emergencies when they come along. So I think it makes sense that those decisions are made at the federal level. Um, but it certainly is tempting to think about ways to discipline it because the federal government is no longer making choices to borrow just because of a crisis or a huge opportunity. Again, they're just making choices to borrow because paying for things is really hard. And we have a political system that rejects making hard choices when they're able to. And because there aren't very many budget constraints in place, they really are able to borrow. A lot of people talk about having a balanced budget um, amendment in the Constitution of the federal government. And I think there are pros or cons of that, pros and cons of that, I should say. But it is tempting to find something that would limit how much the government is allowed to borrow to ensure that we do it for economic reasons, not just to avoid hard choices. Maya McGinnis, can you recall the last time we had a balanced budget and or when we had a surplus? So President Clinton, with the help of Governor, now Governor, um, John Kasich and Pete Domenici, all put in place a budget deal. There were a number of budget deals. Actually, I should start before that. There was a budget deal under President Bush that started this process. And then there were two budget deals, uh, the first one in 93, second one in 97, under President Clinton, where they made a number of policy choices. And they did what you have to do to actually get your budget under control. They raised some taxes, and they slowed the growth of some spending. And that combined with a very strong economy, and I have to say that, that the economy really is a big piece of what got us to the balanced budget, put us in a situation where we were running budget surpluses. Um, and I'll tell you, it's sort of embarrassing, but I remember the first op-ed I ever wrote was worrying about, oh my gosh, we are running these budget surpluses, which means you're buying back government debt. What if we run them for so long that we pay down the whole national debt and we don't have a national debt anymore? Um, and the reason you'd worry about that is the national debt is actually what creates your treasury market. It's when we borrow, we issue bills or bonds or notes, and that's our treasury market. That's a critical part of our financial system. But I will say, looking back, I feel somewhat foolish for having worried that the political system would continue those surpluses for so long that we paid off the debt. And so ultimately what happened with not very much time was that um, we passed a number of policies that then subsumed those surpluses we went back into deficits and we haven't had a um we haven't had a surplus since then and we have no real prospects of having one on the course we are on right now the bush tax cuts and 9-11 both playing big factors in that yep that's exactly right so the bush tax cuts were passed at the time one of the justifications for passing them was we actually do need to avoid having surpluses that are so large that we will pay off the debt um, I think that was an unwise choice at the time. What we should have done is taken that extra money and figured out how to shore up our entitlement programs, Social Security and Medicare, which pose some of the bigger financial challenges we have right now. We had a real opportunity to use some of those resources to make sure those entitlements were going to be solvent, which is something their trustees tells us they won't be. But we did have big tax cuts. And then after 9-11, we got in uh, not one but two wars. And it actually was the first time in this country that we'd had wars that we didn't raise taxes at all to help offset the cost. It's natural to borrow for at least part of a war, but we've never borrowed for every part of it. And then there's another piece, too. We actually put a prescription drug benefit into, um, into law. And it was so strange at the time. There was not a single 
bit of discussion about how to pay for it. It was just put on the national credit card, no discussion at all. And as a result, we have huge, huge budget deficits now. I want to come back to entitlement issues, but but you mentioned treasury markets. Explain in detail what what that is and, and why it's important. Well, so it is interesting the way that the government borrows money is they they auction off these treasury bill bonds notes depending on how long the the maturity is and you have the financial institutions that go and purchase them. They are one of the safest investments there is. When you're trying to think about where to put your money, you're unsure, the stock seems so risky, buying US treasuries are a very secure investment because you know the US government is good for it. And not only are they good for sort of the savers of this country, people who are looking to keep their portfolio safer or diversified, they are a huge piece of the global financial economic system where even when there are economic challenges in this country, um, I mean, in this world that this country may have been partially responsible for, like the huge meltdown in 2008, people want to buy treasuries from around the world. Central banks buy our treasuries. They are continued... Um, the safest investment that there is. And so to not have them, people wouldn't know when they were looking for something that was came with less risk where to put their money. Just to give another kind of human example is as people move from their younger working years, they're more risky. They have a long time till they retirement, till they enter retirement, they're saving. They want to make money. They put it more in the stock market. And then as you move more towards retirement, You often move more of your money into those treasuries so that you have a safer investment. They play a really important role that way. As you know, we are now in the middle of a budget debate. So if you were to draw a pie and take a look at the federal budget, and with the assumption that Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and defense spending is approximately two-thirds of the federal budget, if that's correct, where does the other third go? Okay, so there are two parts of the federal budget. Budget pie, it is how I think about it. There's discretionary spending and mandatory spending. Discretionary spending is the piece of the pie that is appropriated every year. That means the government has to go through passing the spending bills that decide how much money will go to those parts of the government. Those parts of the government include defense spending. That's by far the largest part, about half of it. The rest is things like international affairs, energy, the environment, education, worker retraining, um, uh, the interior. There are just a lot of different pieces, the justice system, that are in those discretionary parts of the budget. Then the big programs that you talked about are ones called mandatory. And what they mean is you don't have to appropriate the money for them every year. They're actually not budgeted for But if you qualify for those programs, you will get benefits. If you qualify for your Medicare benefits or your Social Security benefits or Medicaid or veterans benefits or agriculture subsidies, um, you will receive that money, and it doesn't have to comply within a budget. That is two-thirds of the budget right there. I'd also include interest payments in it, which are part of the mandatory spending because we have to pay our interest. Two-thirds of the budget and by far the fastest-growing part of the budget. Interestingly, the president recently put out what they call his skinny budget. That's not his full budget um, because they're new into office. They haven't had time to put together a full budget. But just their skinny budget only put out a plan for just the rest of this year and next year, but it only looked at that discretionary portion of the budget or the one-third. And basically there they said, we're going to increase defense spending and we're going to pay for it with some cuts in domestic discretionary. Um, but he left the other two-thirds of the budget unaddressed. And that, that will be a very important thing to see what his plan for the country is 
when he releases his full budget in the next couple months. So, Maya McGinnis, go back to what you said earlier. If the overall debt is our credit card, that means we've already spent the money. So if you're a homeowner, you bought, you paid for a trip or you've uh, paid for educational expenses or a new hot water heater or furniture or other things. The national debt at $20 trillion, those are things that we've already bought, correct? Yeah, those are things that we already bought, we already paid for. Now, I'm going to complicate things even more because there's actually two national debts out there. There's the total debt, which is that $20 trillion number. And then there's the debt held by the public, which is about $14.5 trillion. That's how much we've borrowed from the public. Um, and the difference between those two is how much we've borrowed from ourselves because we do have parts of government, and by far the biggest is Social Security, but a second smaller piece is uh, the postal office where they have trust funds where we have borrowed some of the money and we need to repay those. There's actually hundreds of trust funds. Social Security is by far the largest ones. Um, and we have to repay the money that we borrowed from there. So the big difference between $14.5 trillion, $20 trillion is how much we actually owe to ourselves. So when you think about the debt, you hear those numbers diff used at different times. The debt held by the public really affects the overall economy. It's when you go out in those open markets, you issue those treasuries, you borrow. What you're borrowing isn't available for the private sector to be using. The, de the total debt, or the $20 trillion, is really the story of how much we're going to have to repay, so how much of our future budget we've already allocated. So the next generation better be um, prepared that we've already decided how they're going to spend $20 trillion of their budget. You don't have to repay the money. Sometimes people talk about, well, each of each family owes, you know, sixty trillion dollars. Excuse me, sixty thousand dollars of the national debt. We're not going to have to repay it, but it does mean we've already pre-allocated where it's going to go. But to your original point, we have already borrowed that money, and so we do have to make good on it. It's not something where we can change the policies. And one important piece of that is we do have something called the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling is a limit that our lawmakers put on themselves saying there's only so much you can borrow and that number happens to be 20 trillion and as of you you've pointed out we're at 20 trillion so we're at that debt limit right now the way we are getting around it is for a couple months you can play basically it's kind of um, a bit of a Ponzi scheme where you're borrowing from certain trust funds that don't that the debt limit don't apply to and, and lending to others you buy yourself a couple months but we will have to lift that debt ceiling because it's not that that's approving that we'll be borrowing more so much as that it's repaying the amount that we owe on what we've already borrowed. We're going to have to pay interest to our debt to uh, our lenders, for instance. So the debt ceiling um, is something that is a constant reminder how much we've borrowed and that we will have to continue to be borrowing more until we change our policies, until we deal with revenues and deal with spending so we're not borrowing as much uh, we can get that debt back under control and not, not hit up against that debt ceiling every every couple of years or every couple of months, depending on what level it is. And that will be a major debate come September, oh, October. It sure will. What you normally see with the debt ceiling is that whatever the party that's the majority party is gets stuck lifting it. Both parties whine and complain and say, oh, this is terrible. We're borrowing so much. Our children, our grandchildren, they go down to the floor and they make impassioned speeches um, then they continue to pass policies that make the debt even worse. And whichever the majority party is usually has to find the votes to lift the debt ceiling because it would be inconceivable that we wouldn't. That changed a few years ago when uh, there was a group of Republicans who held out and said, 
uh, we're not going to lift the debt ceiling. We think we're borrowing too much. And I applaud the point that we're borrowing too much, but it is intolerable to threaten not lifting the debt ceiling because, again, that means not paying for things we've already borrowed for, and it means putting the country into a default, which would create likely a huge global economic crisis. It's really shooting yourself not in the foot, but in the heart. It's a terrible uh, thing to hold hostage. So I am a huge fan of using something like the debt ceiling or any other fiscal speed bumps that are out there as reminders that we have to make changes and our politicians really have to do better. And we as voters have to do better and ask them to be willing to pay for what they do and to be willing to put a debt deal in place. But you can't do it by refusing to lift the debt ceiling. And when you say holding hostage, let me ask you about China, because many say China's role in our debt and what we owe China is also a factor in American foreign policy towards China. Yeah, great point. As it as we have changed over the years and decades, we now borrow more of our money overseas. There are certain countries, Japan, for instance, where their debt is much higher than ours, but they borrow most of it domestically from themselves because they uh, their citizens save so much money, they lend it to the government. We are not big savers in this country. In fact, we are big consumers and we are big borrowers. And our government has moved towards borrowing more and more of its money from overseas. And one of the big examples of that is China. We also borrow a lot from the oil-producing countries, um, many of whom do not have foreign policy objectives that are aligned with our own. And that leaves us can, can potentially very vulnerable. If you are borrowing some from somebody who may have different motives than you do or want different things and has some kind of power over your country, you have less control over your own economy and your own political decisions. And we shouldn't be in that position. We shouldn't have let ourselves be in that position, and we should find a way to get out of that position because you need to control your destiny. It, it makes no sense to turn over that kind of control when there are so many tensions throughout the world as there are these days. You know, from Ross Perot to, to Donald Trump, uh, their campaign slogan, we're going to run the federal government the way I've run businesses. Uh, if you had so many people saying that, you might be able to bring down the debt for a dollar every time they make that campaign <laughs> pledge. But can you run the federal government like a business? Well, I love the idea in some ways. And what I really think that I, that we can do and we should do is uh, I was talking with a bunch of accountants the other night. And many of them are on do different accounting for different areas of the federal government. Um, and it is very hard to pull together, for instance, a full detailed audit, audit of the Defense Department. Um, and so are there ways we can improve our understanding of the federal government, squeeze out efficiencies and waste? Absolutely. And we should really devote time and energy to that. Um, and I think business practices could be very useful there. That said, I do worry that that focus distracts from the much bigger picture, which is this is less that we don't run our government efficiently and that our political system and our economic system have become at odds with each other. Where when your political system is two parties who are spending as much energy, if well, probably more energy in beating each other up than accomplishing, certainly than accomplishing shared policy goals, um, you no longer are focusing on the trade-offs. That is what a budget really is. And that's where we are right now. So I would like to see huge reviews of government spending. And um, we do a lot of spending through the tax code, too, tax expenditures. Figure out how we can do them more efficiency. Take lessons from the private sector. I'd love to have – I think that that is going to be a whole task force the White House creates or commission. I think that's a great idea. But let's not kid ourselves that we can squeeze out that so-called waste, fraud, and abuse and not make real choices 
Nothing could be farther from the truth. The bottom line is we have committed huge trillions of dollars of resources in this country, and we have been unwilling to pay for it through taxes or reducing other spending. And we are going to have to make some choices when it comes to those policy decisions. I don't like to oversimplify the federal budget and depend it's a, pretend that it's a household or exactly like a household, but you just have to make decisions based on what you can afford, or in this case, we're willing to afford. And we have big disagreements about what our tax levels should be, but both parties tend to prefer policies where they're spending but not paying for the things, and that leads to a mountain of debt, which is what we have right now. So let me go back to your earlier point that we have doubled the debt over the last eight or nine years, which, as you indicated, is not sustainable. As somebody who heads up the campaign to fix the debt, how do we do that? How do we fix the debt? Yeah, I am... Well, it is not in terms of policy out of our, um, you know, we know how to do it. It is not unfixable and is not unknowable. And in fact, we know what, what the right approach is. First off, you're going to have to look at all parts of the budget. When people start saying, okay, but you can't touch Social Security or you can't touch Medicare or you can't touch taxes, that's just not viable for so many reasons. First and foremost, if you run through the numbers, we have a budget simulator, which I think is a fun exercise to do. Not everybody would think spending a Friday night running through an an exercise on how to balance the budget is the most fun thing, but I think it's kind of fun. How can they check it out? It's on our website. So the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, crfb.org. And you go through and you pick a fiscal goal. Let's say you want to balance the budget or you want to get the debt down to a certain level. Then you go through different levers throughout the budget. And anybody who takes this exercise seriously, and I have members of Congress do it as well, quickly finds, okay, the problem is too big to pretend we can do it just by cutting, and there's so many myths out there. You know, we talked about waste, fraud, and abuse. People say, well, if we just cut foreign aid, please, it's 1% of the budget. That's not going to fix the problem. They're going to realize that you need to make very significant spending cuts, and even then, you have to raise taxes. So no, anyone who's talking about a pledge not to raise taxes isn't telling the fiscal truth. And anyone who says we don't have to deal with Social Security is making promises that jeopardize people who depend on that program because we have made promises don't have a plan to pay for them yet. And if we continue to delay, there will be automatic spending cuts. By the time that today's 50-year-old is retiring, there'll be across-the-board spending cuts of more than a fifth. And that will be from everybody, from the most vulnerable widow uh, to the person collecting their disability check. It's just inconceivable that we pretend we don't have to make these choices. So the first thing you have to do is acknowledge every part of the budget is going to be part of the solution. And I also think that's important politically because kind of as the stereotype goes, Republicans don't want to raise taxes. Democrats don't want to cut spending. Obviously, it's more nuanced when it comes to actual members of Congress. But for something politically to stick, you need bipartisanship, bipartisan buy-in. And that means you have to look at all parts of the budget. We have to fix Social Security so that it's strong and solvent for future generations. We have to find a way to control health care costs, which will help the cost of Medicare and Medicaid. I don't think that the effort that we just went through to repeal and replace Obamacare, whether one liked it or didn't, didn't focus enough on controlling health care costs. We can do that if you replace Obamacare. We can do that as part of Obamacare, but controlling health care costs is a big priority Um, The president's budget talked about increasing defense. That may be necessary for security needs, but there are also places you can find savings in defense. 
and there's just a whole lot of parts of the budget we're going to have to look at. Uh, those those tax breaks throughout the tax code, we lose over one and a half trillion dollars. Back to that number trillion a year in tax breaks. And if we go through them and say, do we really need to be subsidizing vacation homes and all sorts of things that people may like, but they're not the best and highest use of resources, we could find savings throughout there too. But I will say we have waited so long, it's not going to be easy. And so the real question, how do we fix the debt, is once we have that policy figured out, it's going to take presidential leadership. I have looked at this. We have Uh, state efforts around the country. We've gone around and talked to people around the country. There are many, many citizens who are willing to um, support some of these hard choices and understand why it's important for them and their children and their grandchildren. But you need somebody who uses the bully pulpit to bring the country together on this, both educate them and talk about coming together to make these choices and why it's so important for the economy and the future. Um, And that means during an election, you need to have people who are actually discussing the different approaches to it so it becomes something that is more widespread and understood. This past election was certainly not one where the focus was on fiscal responsibility. On that sobering note, let me conclude with a a personal question. You have two teenage children. (laughs) What will they inherit? Oh, boy. I mean, I think there was this movie Sliding Doors that showed the two different paths that, that if the the lead of it took one subway versus the other, how the life was so different. If we get this right, if we're able to put a debt deal in place, we don't have to balance the budget immediately or anything like that. But if we get to a point where the debt's not growing faster than our economy, this economy has more potential. This country has more potential than any country in the world. We have such incredible skills in this country, entrepreneurship, markets that function, um, such a great sort of work ethic and spirit. There's kind of we would be unstoppable. But if we continue to borrow, and by the way, I should point out, we're not borrowing to make big productive investments for my kids or your kids. We are borrowing because we don't like paying the bills. They will inherit a huge promise to support us when we retire and get get our health care by paying much more for us than we paid for ourselves. We'll collect much more from those benefits than we paid in. We will not have increased our um, investments in our education system, our infrastructure, our basic research, our worker retraining to keep people uh, able to compete in this ever-changing and and quickly moving work environment. Um, And their standard of living will be so much worse. Uh, And I don't want to kind of exaggerate the risks of this, but we all know that a growing economic pie makes for a much easier situation. And you see tensions when people, when countries lose control of their fiscal health, you see tensions grow and you see that countries don't stay strong and great. And I'm really worried that this is one of those pivotal decisions that will affect tremendously the life of um, our kids. The insights of Maya McGinnis, the president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget and head of the campaign to fix the debt. Thank you for that lesson. The Debt 101. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This episode is an encore presentation of C-SPAN's The Weekly, recorded in April of 2017. You can find this episode and all of our podcasts on the free C-SPAN radio app, on our website at cspan.org, or wherever you get your podcasts.